வெல்கம் டு கிரியேட்டிங் வெல் த்ரூ பேசிவ் அப்பார்ட்மெண்ட் இன்வெஸ்டிங் பாட்காஸ்ட் இன் திஸ் ஷோ வி வில் டிஸ்கஸ் அபவுட் பெஸ்ட் அண்ட் வர்ஸ்ட் எக்ஸ்பீரியன்சஸ் அபவுட் பேசிவ் அண்ட் ஆக்டிவ் அப்பார்ட்மெண்ட் இன்வெஸ்டிங் அண்ட் ஐ ஆம் யுவர் ஹோஸ்ட் ராமகிருஷ்ணா லெஸ் பிகின் த ஷோ டுடேஸ் அவர் கெஸ்ட் இஸ் ஸ்பென்சர் இலகாஸ் from Madison Investing. Welcome, Spencer. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Rama. Very excited to be here. Sure. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. A little bit about Spencer. Spencer is the CEO and co-founder of Madison Investing, a real estate investment firm specializing in real estate syndications. As a passive investor and active syndicator, he understands the unique challenges that busy professionals face when starting out on their REI journey. Spencer's mission is to arm investors with the know-how they need to make confident investment decisions tailored to their individual life goals. So with that Spencer, uh, you want add anything to your background? Well, thank you again Rama for having me. Uh let's see. A couple other things I'd probably add. You know, so I'm based out here in a place called Alameda, California, which uh, most folks outside of the Bay Area, California might not know, but I'll make it more specific. It's right across from Oakland um and also San Francisco so I've spent you know, much of my life in Silicon Valley um spent a wonderful 10 years in Colorado as well before coming back here but it's where I grew up you know I I grew up in a real estate household actually as well I, I used to be embarrassed about bringing up the fact that I was working in my my dad's residential real estate business as early as like an early teenager doing open houses and stuff because when you work in tech uh particularly in Silicon Valley it's not cool to tell your friends that you work in real estate and then spent 13 years building a, a technology leadership career and it was really across fintech uh, finance tech companies largely you know starting with companies very well known like intuit but also going much smaller you know early stage tech companies and that was wonderful so i just wanted to mention that because so many of the principles frameworks about decision making scaling growing a business all those those things Man, I'm so grateful Rama to have covered those things in my technology career. You know, it's hard fought, but I think that ultimately I found myself working in uh the fifth fifth software company I was at was actually uh, a lender, a technology lender. Um and and they were also lending to fix and flippers. And so that was my my exposure to real estate investing well before passive investing in real estate. I I was building the loan origination groups at Lending Home and we did uh while I was there we we did we were doing about 600 transactions per month and we ultimately did about 4 billion dollars in you know fix and flip bridge loans and i was like wow i i think this is probably not necessarily the direction i want to go personally in terms of investing and i want to be a flipper but i was very interested in the notion of going to bigger deals eventually but we just kind of stumbled our way buying rentals and building a single family home portfolio as is so common uh before eventually getting to investing passively ourselves in in bigger deals. And so now we help other people do that as well uh, through Madison Investing through our company, but it's been a heck of a journey uh, and I'm deeply grateful for all the learnings and the support along the way from folks our network. Got it and thanks for elaborating on that. And would you share your investment philosophy, Spencer? A couple of things, you know, matching strategy is in setting goals before setting that strategy is just critical. So, you know, go slow to go fast is a phrase that is often used in the tech world and it's a little bit contrived because it's used so often, but I still take a lot of it gives me a lot of clarity. Um and the reason I say that as well, particularly in the realm of passive investing Rama is because on the spectrum of active investing and we're talking specifically about real estate of course, but 
active investing to passive investing on the other side, you know, a lot of folks tend to gravitate and my, myself included toward a very specific asset class. Like maybe it's single family homes and, or perhaps it's folks that go directly to larger properties, like, you know, large apartment buildings as we, as you focus on in your awesome show. So I encourage folks to take a step back. And I certainly have done this um, time and time again, we'll continue to revisit these goals that we have set for our own investing purposes for our own family, as well as for our investors is that, you know, we are looking to be ultimately passive and that informs how we determine where to put our capital. And, And I think that that is something that a lot of folks tend to leapfrog over. So long story short, our investment thesis, if you had to kind of put it into simple terms is we now focus on cash flowing properties that still offer growth, largely value add deals. You know, I think uh, apartments, large apartments, 100 to 150 units and up tend to be, uh, you know, in the Sunbelt states, um, as well as now focusing a bit more uh, geographically out west to places like Idaho, you know, surrounding markets at Boise, uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, and now, you know, focusing a lot, uh, quite a bit in Phoenix, um, Arizona as well. So that's really been the geographical footprint that we focus on, but looking for cash flow and open-mindedness to to different styles of business plan, but largely focused on the stuff that is really the best kind of boring. <laughs> um, I, I like I like uh, predictability, um, and I think that, that you know forecasting and financial plans and operations is stuff that I felt comfortable with from my corporate career, and that's where I saw the appeal within the realm of these larger deals. Um, and, and I think that that's resonated very well with many members of our investing group, Madison Investing, as well. It's because they they look at these like, oh, it's a business, you know, more so than buying a single family rental, like it is literally valued as a business based on things like net operating income and market demand. So that is a very long-winded answer to your question, but hopefully <laughs> hopefully that was uh, understandable. Yes, totally. Uh, and uh, would you share uh, your breakthrough moment in multifamily space? Yeah. Well, it's, it's a fun question because uh, depending on how you define breakthrough moment, I, it, it's hard to choose. I would say kind of a light bulb moment for me, first and foremost, Rama, uh, was when I was still, you know, when I say uh, we were still like my co-founder is also my wife and, um, you know, my COO, Jennifer Mormoto, and we were still, you know, building a smaller property portfolio when this first breakthrough moment happened. And we had some single family uh, properties in the Midwest that we had purchased and they were cash flowing fine. I mean, you can't really go wrong with buying properties that were, you know, fifty dollars to $60,000 a piece purchase price a number of years ago, and you're getting something like $200 a month in cash flow per door. That sounds great. But ultimately, um, we realized that that came with a bit more overhead, even with property management. Uh, you know, we, we still looked at that like, we don't want to be taking these phone calls to manage the manager, and we don't want to deal with things even as simple as like dealing with uh, property taxes and, and occasional, uh, you know, county issues and stuff like that. So we we were like, how do we go and find something that puts front loads the diligence and allows us to truly like go deep on the diligence of where's the, uh, you know, who, who's involved kind of like in syndication or larger deals, you call that the operator, the syndicator, but like the same principle applies on a three-part framework. And this was the breakthrough moment that we realized when we made this change is operator, the market and the deal. And when I realized like, the who is the most important part of all this passive investing stuff. Uh, and you can diligence the who very thoroughly based on what they've done, like who's who's either selling the property or who's involved in managing the property, all that. Number two is the market and really understanding the market. And then number three is the business plan. And 
getting clarity on those three things. I, I didn't come up with that concept. I mean, that three-part framework came from people way smarter than myself, but we tailored it to our own purposes and deepened it. And we put it down to the point where it's like literally sitting in an Excel spreadsheet um, with my nerdy list of questions. And, and, you know, there's about 70 of them and we're sitting there going, this is how we should look at deals. Let's go look at bigger ones that front load the diligence that aren't going to be a lot of hands-on work for us necessarily as passive investors once we get into them. And that's kind of what led us to bigger deals in the first place, Rama, was like, hey, yes, we have to place more trust, uh, at least when we're on the, the passive side, in the person who's the asset manager. Eventually, we, you know, we've obviously gone active and, and we're involved in syndications and I'm involved as a GP in some deals, but also passively in others now. But anyone can go out and really apply that three-part framework and invest in making sure that whatever they're analyzing, whether it's a self-storage facility, whether it's a senior a senior living facility, whether it's you know a triple net lease deal, industrial, right? By like all these things, it all comes down to that breakthrough moment that I feel like we have just taking the time to put a framework together. And, and it doesn't have to be rocket science, but I think a lot of folks, we all tend to rush through because it's so much more tangible to say, man, that asset class looks great, but you don't stop to say, what's the decision framework with which I will look at all deals at the highest level. And that's a great point. Actually, you're talking about frame building frameworks, identifying framework, you know, well, uh, building on top of that. Yeah, that's great. What do you, what do you prefer like from playing uh, financial side offense versus defense? Yeah. I mean, th- this is a fun topic. You know, I think a few years ago, uh, this is actually when I was still very deep into my tech career, um, I think four companies in, and I was, this is before we started investing in one of the passive stuff in real estate. You know, it, I, I was working 80 to 100 hours a week in the early stage startup. It, it sounds cliche for the kind of things you hear about in like Silicon Valley, right? But, but like that's, that was reality for us. I had an infant son at the time, and this is brief, but I think it's relevant coming back to your question, which is like, I was putting in all of that work and we were dropping money into 401ks and traditional investment vehicles making solid W-2 income, you know, dual income household. But ultimately, we weren't seeing movement on the net worth, at least not, not as quickly as we were wanted to. You know, it was clear to me at that point, like, hey, I, I, we got to figure out a different plan, like a long-term plan, because there's kind of this broken narrative of a Silicon Valley. I mean, I, there's nothing official about this, but this is my observation and label that like so many people are aiming to get a kind of get out of jail free card, if you will with working in early stage tech companies and hoping they have a huge liquidity event and they have an IPO or now as it all, it is so popular out there, people are doing, you know, private listings and SPACs and all this other stuff, but they're looking for a big moment to somehow let them play catch up. And we were kind of on that path, Rama. And so like, I I bring that up because we were not playing what I consider to be now financial offense. And we were going through the motions. We were working, I was working really hard but we weren't seeing the movement. So offense to me means now, okay, are we investing? Are we investing for our goals? And our goals, man, we hadn't really set them either. You know, we, had, we hadn't set them clearly. Like, like where do we want to be lifestyle-wise? Like, are we increasing our net worth? Are we getting cash flow from our investments? Like, these are all things that are really helpful. So that, that was where, like, the, the first kind of big aha when it came to financial offense. Financial defense is, at first glance, it sounds like it's just frugality, <laughs> which is... Which is probably the you know one of the least fun topics for anyone to want to think about, myself included. I've never been a huge fan of having to put together something like a budget for personal finance, um, and I don't claim to have the answer on that. You know, I, I think things such as the fire movement are are awesome, um, but I don't actually fully subscribe to that. I think that it's about 
expanding one's means, not restricting what, what you're allowed to go and spend on or invest in. So that's important context because financial defense now means to me, like, man, I was getting taxed like so many of us in the W-2 world very heavily, you know, like, like particularly if you're in heavily bonus roles of any type. And some of these things, depending on how you choose to create, like, like how, how we chose to create income streams to our household, that determines your tax burden. And we ultimately, over a course of years, have worked very hard to, to play better financial defense. And, and I define that as, okay, how do we go invest in, and frankly, build more income and buy more income streams that are, are more tax efficient. And so keeping more of what we actually want and, and not just having it kind of go half of our paychecks and half of our income streams go somewhere else. So th those are some of the, and at least brief comments, uh, somewhat brief comments on um, how I think about financial offense uh, and financial defense, but it's such a fun topic. I think even on defense, just one more thing I'd mentioned, Rama, is that there is a frugality comment on the big ticket items. And I think that just to say it bluntly, I'm a big believer in um, don't show it off if you don't need to. <laughs> and I, I think a lot of folks, I, I place no judgment on folks that love a luxury car, a super high-end car, or like they want to buy a very large, very luxurious home. Um, I am really a guy who wants to be a great dad. I want to be a good husband and, and I want to be present and, and you know be able to give back charitably. So there is a comment there probably on the bigger ticket items because uh, so many folks are out there saying that they don't have options, but one of the first lines of defense that you can play truly is just don't go increase your lifestyle as your income increases, you know, and like, and, and like we've really tried to do that. And I think we've been successful at that. Um, and it's been helpful at the time. Got it. Cool. And you have track record of building high-performing teams uh, across over five companies in, in W2 role. Would you share like, what skills and what characters and what other facts are you would uh, consider, you know, before building a hiring team or building teams? You know? Yeah, I mean, this is a topic that I wish I, I wish I had a chance to get into more and more often. It, you know, it's, if I had to say the thing that I miss the most about the W two world now that I'm a full time uh, real estate investor, um, it would be yeah. team the team dynamic um, and, and working with others. That you know, hiring and growing teams is a very exciting thing. It's a very taxing thing. <laughs> Um, of course, and you could probably relate to these things, yeah. but um, I think for me, hiring, when you have a clear understanding of what you're hiring for, you know, know what you're looking for in scaling teams and scoping out, you know, the type of folks and the type of team that you're trying to assemble. I see a lot of folks, I think particularly, it's not just in the real estate investing community, I'd say largely the early entrepreneur community. There's notions of, you know, higher higher fast, um, higher, you know, a phrase you'll often hear is like higher fast, fire fast. I, I'm, a, I'm the guy who I would say is not seeking maximum headcount. And I think that a lot of times it, a pitfall that a lot of people in entrepreneurship can hit and team building in general is that they tie their self-worth <laughs> to the size of their team even. And so there's kind of two comments there is number one, know why you're hiring people and make sure that you're clear on what that is and what you're looking for. But also in the same comment, have a clear understanding of like, just because an organization is larger by headcount, that really has nothing to do with how the business is going to perform necessarily, nor does it, does it show one success. So the other thing I just wanted to mention briefly, Rama, on this topic is like, in terms of hiring now in the context uh, of the 2021 market landscape that we're in, it's so different even than like two years ago, right? And, and you look at the flexibility around remote work, you, you look around the dynamic of having people 
you know, have to having to be trusted and 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 showing up when when they are trusted by being remote employees more and more. And that lends itself very well toward rock stars and just high performers thriving, you know, meaning if you place the trust and you give more runway to, to, to the people and you hire people that are better than you, like truly seeking out amazing folks that might be earlier in the overall career journey, but you see them as eventually far surpassing whatever you're capable of as a leader. That is a huge plus, like in terms of hiring strategy that I have found success with in the past is like hire people better than you any day of the week. And if, and if you could structure the role for them and give them plenty of runway and trust, not to say I've always done that perfectly. I've made plenty of time, plenty of mistakes and fallen flat on my face plenty of times as a leader and manager. And I always try to learn from those mistakes. But like when you do it right, you should be hiring people who are smarter than you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So right. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. And would you share any of your best multifamily investing experience so far, Spencer? Sure. Being able to find people that, that that you could trust from a partnership perspective is not only about track record. And I think this is a contrarian comment perhaps, but it's not just about like, let's say you go find a partner and but like, for, like in our business, what we do is we're really good at finding folks that we want to invest our own money with uh, first as LPs. And oftentimes what we'll do is we'll go do that. We'll put them through diligence. I'll go out and visit their offices as asset managers and get to know them, see their, see their properties, all the rest. And then eventually, you know, I may, I may join them in their GP team on a deal and we help vet the deals that they send us and, and we present those to our investing group if they meet our criteria, all that stuff. And so as part of that structure, what really, really matters, I have found now more than ever, is you have to find not only an alignment on track record, like can they can, can this team pull off the plan, the business plan that they're about to go do? Because what we tend to focus on is, is familiar territory for you, Rama, and many of your listeners, because you've covered this on your show before, which is, you know, value add business plans. If you're buying something like a large apartment building, you're forcing appreciation by doing some form of renovations or swapping in new property management. And then over a course of time, you're able to go and do things like responsibly raise rents, et cetera, and then eventually sell the asset or refinance it or something like that to, to, to make positive returns for everyone involved. And all that to say, it's not just about the track record, it's very much about the communication. And it's very much even about values, as corny as that might sound, um, because watching how some assets perform throughout mid-2020 COVID and looking at you know A-class, B-class, C-class, totally different experiences depending on the, the sub-market, all the rest, it really matters how does the team prioritize things like the tenant experience? Do they care at all about it? Or are they just trying to make sure that the rent comes in? That is important, of course. Are they trying to build community? Um, and, and all of these things, you know, when it comes to partnership structuring, seeking out people we want to both invest with and potentially partner with, that matters immensely. And I think that that's just a couple of uh, nuggets that, of wisdom that I'm glad I got now and I wish I had gotten even earlier. Got it. Yeah. And would you also share any of your challenging experiences in multifamily space? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the most common phrases that we have all seen, I have used many times, and I, it is absolutely true is that these wonderful assets create cash flow, and that's why I'm drawn to them. It's, it's one of the reasons I'm drawn to them in addition to things like, you know, you could even get cash flow plus growth plus tax efficiency. So all these wonderful things at one time in one vehicle, but the cash flow aspect and focusing on like one particular deal, for example, that we invested in is as LPs, pure employees LPs, uh, you know, it, they had to cut distributions in the middle of 2020. And 
we didn't get any for a long time. But on the other side of that, the deal exited years ahead of its full ahead of its stated plan. Once we invested in this thing back in like, I don't know, 2018 or so. And the actual return on that deal ended up being stellar. And it, even though we sure we didn't get the cash flow distributions along the way, we're very pleased with how that property exited because of the very favorable sales price. And so I bring that up because I think that there is really critical discussions to be had, both as an LP, like when I'm about to go invest in one of these you know, pr- private real estate transactions, um, or if someone that we're working with in our group says, hey, do you think this is a good fit of a deal for me to put my own capital into? Really going thoroughly and deeply into goals alignment and understanding it doesn't have to be complex, but cash flow. It doesn't like how much does that matter to me? You know, growth. How much does that matter to me? And sometimes when people go in and they say, "No, cash flow isn't that big of a deal," but they're absolutely expecting it every single month or every single quarter themselves. Or if I'm expecting that, I shouldn't just glaze over that. That's important because these deals are, you know, that they're high, they're um, potentially really, really strong performing. But at the same time, they have some fluidity to them, depending on the timing and the context in the market. So that was really interesting to see. And now explain also to investors as I work with them is like, you know, how much do you really need to like, does, are you depending on the cash flow to live on? Or is this like a growth play for you? And the, you know, dozens of other directions and conversations that will have around those kinds of topics. Yeah. Yeah. So, so true. And w- what is your current focus on share something you're excited about? Now? Yeah. You know, I think right now, what has been really interesting is that after the observations and performance that we all saw, you know, coming out of 2020, coming into 2021, and Q4, rather, sorry, I'm using corporate speak. The audience might be like, what are you talking about with Q4? So the fourth quarter, the last portion of the year, starting October 1st, you know, through the end of the year, it really does become quite busy. And I don't fully understand why last year it got crazy busy. And this year it's about to become crazy busy as well in a good way. All that to say, there's a wonderful problem created of too many quote unquote deals floating around. And I think what's so critical now more than ever is being able to go and consistently say no as an LP um, and be discerning and understand, uh, you know, it's okay to take your time when, when you're looking through things. So this might be a little bit of a contrarian answer, but I think it's so key right now because everyone's excited in the market. It's an exuberant market, both on the equities markets and stock market, as well as on the real estate and beyond. And, and right now it's a wonderful problem created because uh, we're saying no a lot. And I, that sounds perhaps not as exciting. To me, that's exciting because that means uh, good deal flow allows us to be discerning and take our time and, and really understand what we're getting into and helping others get into. So I get excited about that. Got it. Cool. What drives you for what you are doing? You know, for me, it's simple. For some folks, like I, I place no judgments on folks that want to do more of like the empire building narrative, you know, if they want to go get a maximum unit count, you know, if they're trying to get to a certain number of assets under management, if they have big aspirations financially, we are looking for optionality for our family. I want to be a great dad, a good husband. I also want to be able to give charitably uh, and do that in an ongoing basis. Um, in addition to being able to be fully geographically flexible. And we have a couple of young kids still, so we can't quite do that all the way yet. Uh, but I do think that um, just honestly living well, without having to go and constantly be chasing some other next level. Being a great dad, being a great husband, that is the stuff that drives me. Awesome. Any books that impacted your life and what way? Yeah, I mean, there's just so many. I I would probably pick the most helpful one for me, both from an inspiration perspective, as well as just being pragmatic, Rama, would be Essentialism by Greg McEwen. I have read it 
three times. I mean, full disclosure, I think I've listened to it three times because I'm an audiobook guy sometimes when I'm on a run. But I, I, I find that to be the most helpful book and really relevant now more than ever because it's all about helping folks wrap their heads around that we all have the same 24 hours in a day. But somehow, really high performers, like the strongest performers in the world, whether it's like, you know, you could pick a few names out of a hat, probably like, like Oprah, you know, or like, like Bill Gates, like, like folks who have done immensely well in the world. And they have the same time that we do every day, but somehow they're doing better. And it's not just luck, despite what people might think. It has to do with prioritization. And essentialism literally helps you solve that problem in ways that I no other book that I've seen does, which is it tells you how to say no in a socially acceptable way to people, because that's what it's all about. Like you, you can prioritize all you want, but we all succumb to social pressure when a good friend says, Hey, you want to go get that coffee or you want to go to dinner or you want to go to the bar and have a drink. And it's like, well, you can also spend that time building a business that will ultimately liberate you financially for the rest of your life, or you can go get that beer. Right. And, and I think that that's the, that's the takeaway from that book. Yeah. Yeah. And powerful. And thanks for sharing that. I think that is a great, great takeaway. And how about giving back to community Spencer? Yeah. You know, I think, um, We've kind of consistently given charitably, uh, you know, I think that that's, you know, a financial thing. I think also just really, this might sound small, but I do find that it's really both fulfilling for the person that I'm, I'm helping, but also on my end as well. I, I, you know, if I had to miss, I, I mentioned this earlier, Mama, but like, if I had to miss one thing from the corporate career that I'd spent 13 years in, it's working one-to-one with people in a coaching capacity. You know, I don't have like a paid coaching program, although there are many of them out there. I don't intend to start one. I, I, I think being able to just provide value by coaching, at least in the areas where I can add value for people and just doing that on a pro bono basis and informal basis with the people that, that they really need it, you know? And, and so I try to do that on a kind of a smaller, a small ball scale. Uh, but beyond that, yeah, we, we give charitably. Got it. So, and how can listeners can connect with you? Yeah. Uh, you can come to our website. It is uh, madisoninvesting.com. And I think uh, right on there now, uh, we kind of have just, you know, a get started link. And, you know, if you plug that in, you can join our our newsletter, we do a monthly newsletter, but also to give you a chance to uh, to book a time with me. And, you know, always happy to just have a, you know, a phone call. You know, it's like a no obligation thing just to kind of hear someone's goals and be a sounding board. So um, I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, I still try to post regularly, but really we've been so busy with business um, that I've just been working with folks that I think probably the website's the best way to go. Cool. Awesome. And thank you. Thank you, Spencer. Uh, thanks for adding value to the show. Yeah. And thanks so much for having me, Ram. I really appreciate it. It was a blast. Sure, sure. If you like the show, please subscribe, share, rate, and review. And if you want to connect with me, please send me a message info at ushacapital.com. Thank you for listening. Creating Wealth Through Passive Apartment Investing Podcast. I hope you learned something from the show. See you in the next episode. Thank you. Any information provided from these shows are educational purpose only. As always, please consult with your own CPA, legal and financial advisor before investing.